Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. What is Jay-Z's best song? What is the song or the verse or the lyric that best gets at, man, he's a genius, the thesis that you're that you're working with? If you had to, if you push me to one, I would say on, on public service announcement, where he's making a philosophical argument about the nature of identity. You know, you is, you was who you was before you got here, player. You might change, but that's just the top layer. Top layer. He's doing... 12th, 13th, 14th century philosophical conceptions of the evolving context of identity, but beneath the substratum is a persistent idea of who you are, but that is exposed dependent upon contingencies, context, and circumstance. That's a sophisticated argument he's making right there. Michael Eric Dyson is one of the preeminent intellectuals of our time, and part of his brilliance is that he doesn't cloister his genius in the academy. He brings it out into the world, writing books about popular culture, like his latest Jay-Z Made in America, in which he breaks down the semiotics of the man who just might be the greatest MC of his generation. I've known Mike Dyson for over two decades, and to know him is to love him because he's a man of great warmth and generosity and love and spirit. He's a preacher, he's a professor, he's patriarchal, he's avuncular, he's so inspiring. I'm proud to call him a friend, and I'm proud to say that when I need some ministering or some advice or some wisdom, he's there for me. And I'm not afraid to say I love him out in public because his love for me in particular and for black people in general is so tangible, you can cut it with a knife. We talked for an hour about Jay-Z and the next MC he could write a book-length breakdown of. The answer might surprise you. And we talked about writing and Colin Kaepernick and about family. Over the past couple of years, Dyson has buried two of his brothers, one of whom spent the last three decades of his life in prison. And it's painful to talk about, but it's real. And let me tell you, Dr. Dyson is nothing if not real. He's as real as a heart attack. So let's get to it. It's the intellectual heavyweight champion, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson on Torre Show. I mean, one of the things that blew me away is the verse on Monster. And 
um, you know, I remember that summer I did this a bunch of times where I'd be walking down the street and people would be like, you know, oh my God, Nicki Minaj, oh my God. And I'm like, Nicki Minaj's verse was a bunch of lies, right? And a bunch of just like, I wear Giuseppe Sinati and mm. I drive in a hot car. Mm. Do you know what Jay-Z said? He said, the Achilles heel of my life is that I don't get enough love. And that is real going back to his father, his Superman, leaving the crib. Right. And, it, and we talked about that. And he said, like, I shut down after that. And I never wanted anybody else to right. get close to me. Right. So this cool persona is actually right. a coldness right. so that nobody can ever hurt him again. Of course. I'm like, that is true depth and honesty and oh. talking about who you really are. Not, I wear fly shoes and I make more money than you on tour when you actually don't. Well, see, that's a great point. And which is why I think even he puts Kingdom Come so much lower than it deserves to be. I'm talking about the entire project. That was the first run to me at 444, a mature engagement with the world. I'm not just going to talk about hustling. Oh, he talks about it in the second one, Kingdom Come. But he's talking about Hollywood. He's talking about the seductions of culture that tempt you to lose yourself. Kingdom you Come was the album when Justin Timberlake was the first verse. No, that's Magna heard? Carta. That's Magna Carta. Okay, okay. This is the one where he starts off. The game's fucked up. Niggas beats did it. Your gangster look didn't. Your lyrics didn't. Uh, I, that's why I, I would write it if you could get it. That's the whole thing. And then when he ends, well, I used to think that rapping at 38 was ill, but last year alone I grossed 38 mil. I know I'm not quite 38, but still, the flow so special got a 38 feel. I mean, the playful. <laughs> come on, man. I mean, <laughs> the playfulness with the metaphor, a guy like you who, and, and, and me, who is, who's literary, yeah, right? Yeah, the yeah. literariness of what this guy has done uh, is extraordinary. But so you're right. In the 444, where he just peels back the layers. I apologize, you matured. Quicker than I. I'm talking to a woman, what, 12 years is junior? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 11 yeah. years is junior? Yeah. But admitting that, talking about therapy, speaking about his mother's sexual orientation, I mean, sexual orientation. So that album, too, in terms of what you're talking about, the realness, right? And not the cars, not the bling, not the women, well, 440, but me. 444 is an extraordinary statement. It stands out in the history of hip-hop in terms of the emotional oh, statement, God. the apology, um, and just we had been through this whole moment with the sort of royal family of Beyonce is furious. Right, right. Is it a position or is she really furious? Right. Mm -hmm. And then the elevator like, oh, something's oh, going on, but we don't know what's joke. going on. And right. then this comes and it's like, oh, wow, it's really real. Well, he's Drake with Aristotle in his ear. Mm. Right. Mm. So, damn, I should have wrote that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> You're dangerous. So the thing is. Is that right? You know, it's Hegelian. That's what I argue in the book. You got the thesis, which is, you know, Lemonade, which threatened to become the greatest diss album of all time because yes. she ain't named nobody. Yes. Which means everybody. Who the cap fit. Yeah. Who the shoe fits wear it, right? Now, we know she's talking about Jay, but she ain't saying she's talking about Jay. But R&B is always a, 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 an abstract I. I love you. I right. hate you. Of course. It doesn't necessarily mean your husband or your wife. Right. Hip hop. Abstract and universal. I hate you. You are talking about a specific person. You. Your mama and her so, mama in law. So I wasn't sure. Some right. I know some fans were like, Lemonade's about Jay. Right. I was like, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe she did a breakup album. I don't know. The thing is, you don't know. And that's beautiful. Right. She ain't never said, you know, contrary to the ethic at the heart of 
um, her girl group's assertion, say my name, say right. my name. <laughs> so she's doing the complete and, uh, ob- you know, uh, objective opposite of that. She ain't naming no names. Well, and yet everybody is held to account because all you cats out there who your wife ain't made lemonade, but you got some raspberry tea. <laughs> well, she does does get one of the great phrases of modern pop culture. You better call Becky with the good hair. <laughs> Whoa. She was killing it. <laughs> like, she is one of the greatest rappers of all time. No doubt. Literally. No doubt. I mean, her flow is insane. No doubt. Right? And, well, Jay wrote the rap. Look, you can't perform that staccato. She is the godmother of mumble rap. Bruh, before all these dudes, right? Future, you derived the the percussive tonalities from Beyonce's spit. There's no doubt that she precipitated the rise of that song. The song where she had, later than that, where she had, uh, uh, you know, I'm the baddest one in the room. Top off. Top off. Oh, top off. Top off. Oh, the one she did with Khalid. Yes. Yeah, DJ Khalid and... and, Um, She talks about... How am I only lady here and still the realest nigga in the room? I don't. I break the internet top two and I ain't number two. (laughs) (laughs) And it's real. Doc, there's no question. There's no question. Because brags that aren't real, I'm like, anybody could say I'm the greatest rapper of all time. Every rapper should say at some point, I'm the greatest rapper of all time. It don't mean nothing. But when you really real with it, like, When you real with that and when you're living it, when you are the great... But the records with Beyonce uh, represent... A depth of emotion. Some of you don't talk about everything is love, right? Right. In this, but some of the emotionality we're yeah. talking about. I just want to lay by the beach and get lost in your hair. I mean, we I don't have love songs like that in hip hop. Well, that's why in the book, when I talk about the thesis is lemonade, the antithesis is four forty four, and the thesis, the synthesis, as I talk in the book for a couple of paragraphs, is everything is love mm. and the claiming of that love, and it's both political and personal. It's both collective and institutional, and it's individual. I'm, I'm, I'm. What, what's the line from Jay? I'm uh, comfortable, not comfortable. Any MLK Boulevard. Mm. I mean, bruh. Mm. So what do you and think th- about how far we've claiming come blackness? Right? That, that when universally, he was, when he was first with Beyonce, mm. it was a secret, is not to be asked of about. Course, right. uh, I know you remember the the interview in in England where the right. reporter was like, "I'm gonna go for it," right? right. And he asking him, and Jay just sat there, mm. stone faced, like mm-hmm. you know, you know, you ain't supposed to talk about this. And now. Not only a public family man, blue is on the records. Right, it's, right. It's, you know, spitting, it, it, spitting yeah, right, right away. Right, spitting. right. Wow, is that genetic? I mean, what, what, what the hell right, is that? Right. Why, why she got to be so cold at that age? But he was emotionally open to a certain extent from mm. the beginning. Right. To, going back to Reasonable Doubt, where he's talking about shooting his brother and the feelings. You must love me. Right. You must love me. Right. See, so we can't even take Jay's reportage. Now, it is true that when he says... When he talks about the emotionlessness, he's talking about in regard to a specific thing. People get real emotional about a lot of stuff, about their cars, their money, what they're invested in. So you were emotional. You were closed off in one venue. If you listen to to Adonis, you know, about his daddy on 444, Mm. I mean, beautiful, Mm. powerful, emotionally intense. And the thing is, is that, like I said, Drake, who brought back that kind of emotion that Pac had majored in in a certain way, but Drake had it excavated it uh, in such an intimate space with the singing and the rapping. And Jay, to up the ante, 
by saying, but we're going to get real deep. I mean, Drake does it. He's, I'm born October 23rd. He's October 24th. Yellow Negro Scorpios is men. <laughs> what we do right that's what yellow boys do like that right we're, we're acting light-skinned right <laughs> jay is investing it with even more emotional transparency because like you said the stakes are real you know you're talking about your girls drake we all know maybe you named them you know rihanna's the closest thing but then what is that that's abstract we can't grasp hold of it jay's evolving publicity around his relationship to beyonce Right, the initial impulse is to protect it. It's not just for publicity; it's for yeah. Let's 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 husband and secrete this space, yeah, so that we can protect it against all of the vices to which you are subject when you live your life in public, and every narrative is determined from the outside in. Let's generate it from the inside out. But then it became, you know, I got the baddest chick in the game. It was Wearing part of the, that, right? That was part of like right. bragging, like look how bad I am. The hottest woman is with me. You want to do both, right? You want it both hands. You you want to, you want your privacy. You want your privacy yeah. on the one hand, and then you want to boast to the world. And if you're married to Beyonce, can you really blame him? I mean, right, right, know, right, like, right, right, like, right, right, right. Like if you're, and y'all know you know her. One of the sweetest human beings yes. on this earth. Yes. Like, it ain't play. Yes. It ain't fake. Yes. I'll see. I was out at the uh, Tyler Perry thing. I guess somebody spoke to me after she did. I'm not sure. But when she said, <laughs> she says, you know, I just want to thank you so sincerely for always having our back and showing love. I was like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know uh, who else talking to. Oprah, whatever. You know, yeah. I love you, oh. Yeah. I don't talk to the queen, man. Yeah. Because... The sincerity. And let me tell you what, women are never recognized for genius. That woman is a straight-up genius across the board. When Adele stands in the Grammy green room to ask the question, what the fuck does she have to do to win? And this is after, by the way, Adele has won. Mm. Knowing that the real album of the year is Lemonade. Mm. This is in... Beyonce has made Lemonade and is not the Grammy record winner of the two biggest awards that they give out. So the thing is, that genius, I, I, you know, I argued, people arguing with me. I said, look, I saw Michael Jackson at his height. I don't know if anybody in the room, I, I was there. And I saw Beyonce at her height. I said, dude, now body of work, Mike can't be messed with at this point. But in terms of performance on that stage, I said, Beyonce snatched that crown well, home after, away. Well, yeah, after uh, Mike died... Uh, remember the night that BET was doing the, mm -hmm. the tribute to him and there was a big Twitter discussion and right. I was talking with Questlove and mm -hmm. Dream Hampton and mm -hmm. people were chiming in and people were like, who is next on the throne because there right. can never be a vacuum? And we were like, Beyonce. Right. And people were like, well, she's not as good as Mike. I'm like, well, you don't have to be as good as Mike. You have to be better than everybody else alive. And in terms of singing, dancing, making hit records, making right. people around the globe happy, making incredible videos, fashion, it, right. generational influence. Dude, it's Beyonce. She is on the throne. I'm going to go further. I'm telling you that now what you said is absolutely right. It's not just she has to be better than everybody else than she is. She's better than Mike at his height in performance. I'm talking about on stage. I'm talking about you get your hair caught in a fan and keep singing. You, you stumble down the stairs in your high heels and get back up. You remember that, that, that quote that Ann Richards quoted from Ernst and whatever, the cartoon in the 80s? that Fred Astaire, that Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did except backwards, backwards. and in high heels. Mm. Bruh, mm. what she's, and look, 
nonstop for two and two and a half hours. Mike would take breaks, do this, stop, you know, do the little moonwalk. People, oh my God, it's amazing. And he was amazing, but he was not. Pound for pound, square inch occupation of space and the transformative character of the electrifying performance. Now, Michael's reputational gravity sucked people in, and it should have because I was there and I saw it. But what Beyonce does is on a yet another level. I wanna, now, I wanna, body of work, I, I, different performance. I, I want to yes. stick with, with Beyonce, <clears throat> mm-hmm. but should we not have a different opinion of Michael at this point? Can we decouple the greatness from what we know? What we think we know, right? I mean, there's, there's no question that skepticism, maybe even cynicism, have legitimately been, legitimately been unleashed the character of the accusations so strongly contested on either side with warring conceptions about what might have been an offense and what didn't happen, I feel uncomfortable dismissing him. I'm, I'm against certain elements of the disposability of human beings, except in obvious cases where mm. if, we got, if you got somebody locking, you, you are rhetorical <laughs> and musical genius, but you're intimidating women and harassing them and making them call you zaddy and hold them at their... With R. Kelly, I come on, you can't. All right, the evidence is too strong. We have the testimony of the victims themselves, and Michael's case is quite more problematic in terms of the testimony now versus then, versus what was coached, which wasn't, and so it's more complicated. Doesn't mean that there's no penumbra of skepticism that shadows him. There's no question, but the work and the body of work. And the performance of what he has meant to the culture is so intimately sutured into our collective consciousness. That doesn't mean that if he is found to be wrong or proven to be wrong, that we must immediately make the attempt to decouple that extremely important and as extremely difficult as that might be. I just don't think that the jury is as clearly articulated in his case as in some others. Um, But Jay and Beyonce, they reinforce each other Mm -hmm. they make each other seem bigger and more powerful right that fabulous song right we're forced to part, but together (laughs) what what they are together is remarkable i mean uh as you say feeding off of each other playing off of each other uh the willful reinvention of themselves and challenging themselves you know you're a writer so if if i i get an assignment oh i've written like 10 things about that I challenge myself. I ain't going to look at what I said. I ain't going to go back on it. I ain't going to fall on the same concepts. I'm going to force myself. It's hard. Like, damn, it's so much easier. Let me just take what I did. No. Challenge yourself. Raise your game. And that's what they do. Like every night. You know, I've seen them so many times. Perform, engage, even at the height of the disarray. How many books has it been for you? 21. 21. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about you as a writer for a minute. Like, what mm-hmm. do you? Wh- how do writers challenge themselves? How do we get to our highest game? What do What do you want to see writers do more? Mm. What What Kobe did, play through pain, which writers often do, right? Like, no matter the circumstances that prevent you find another way to get to what your goal is. Oh. My finger is broken on my shooting hand. I'm going to rotate the ball and win a championship in the same year. Wow. Offer your shooting finger to a different one. 
that kind of improvisational ethic, that willful self-reinvention that allows you to tap into a different space and arena. So what I was saying earlier, I think writing, you know, the best writer is a rewriter. You know, you got to mm. constantly come at who you are. Because as Dr. Johnson said a few centuries ago, you don't even know what you think until you start writing, really. Like, oh, I didn't know I thought that. That's, that's in you me. You definitely discover things oh at God. the page, Brother, at the computer. Sitting there. Putting writing. words together and like, oh, I believe that. Oh, wow. Didn't know that. Didn't yeah. know that. Interesting. Surprised myself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's the same way fictional writers, and you do both, you know, grasping hold of characters or vice versa, gra- characters grasping hold of you. Um, Which doesn't mean go into it without an outline. Oh, no, not at all. You go into it prepared as much as you can be. I want to know where I'm going, but then also be open to, to the, the imagination, journey. to the journey as to I'm the going journey. through and the connections that I'm making as I'm moving through the work. Absolutely. And you can change your direction. You know, I thought I was going to California, but I think I'm going to Nevada first. You know, and let me make a pit stop. What I thought was a pit stop becomes uh, an amazing Much place. Much more interesting destiny. place to stop here. Yes, yeah. that ain't the pit stop. That's the that's the destination. And I don't want to read what I've written to be consistent to everything I've said, but I do want to be aware of what others have said. So mm-hmm. I'm not just repeating. I read this thing the other day about uh, Pixar's rules for storytelling, and one of the things that jumped mm. out at me was they're like. Don't take your first idea, second, third, fourth. Go for your fifth idea. So don't mm-hmm. go for what's easy for you and your right. imagination, but go for what the idea that you have to work to get to. Of course. Because the thing you can rely upon, the thing you can do so easily, which is what I meant by I've written this before, I could rehash that. And even rehashing it, saying it originally for the, for the, the next first time that you've said it, the next first time <laughs> that you've said it, um, is interesting, but even more intriguing is to challenge yourself in your own mind, to imagine opposite arguments as to what you possess to not only sharpen and hone what you're doing, but to imagine a different discursive universe that calls you to defend in both explicit and implicit ways what your project is, what your ideal is. And, and how much of a, ho- of a hold do you have on it and how much does it have on you? And are you willing? I think it was, again, who was it that said the greatest writer is able to dispense with your favorite sentence? Wow. If you're because it's subject to a higher discipline, does it serve the story? Does it serve the narrative? Murder does your darlings is what we called it that in too. graduate school. That, too. That, that if you have a beautiful sentence, but it doesn't serve the overall purpose. There it is. Then, you, because the point is the per, I it's mean, when I came out of, of that idea. when I came out of graduate school, I thought like, well, I'll write beautiful sentences, and the world right. will want my writing. And mm-hmm. I learned fairly quickly, like, no, the world does not care about beautiful sentences. But if you can make an interesting point that right. will serve somebody's life, then that is something they will want. I'm a preacher too. Forty years I've been preaching. So the story is told that you know, this young man got up. He read the 23rd Psalm and was immaculate, beautiful. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. With magisterial influence and eloquence to no end. And then an older guy got up. He didn't have the poetic device. He didn't have a skill. He didn't even have a voice. But he moved the people to tears. And somebody said, well, what the hell? The first guy was majestic and powerful. They said he knew the psalm. But the second man knew the shepherd that the psalm was talking about because experience and the intimacy of engagement permit you 
to amplify the voices from within. And there is, you know, you can fake authenticity for a minute, but not for long and not forever. And part of that is imagining the counter argument and fighting against that. Not just who is the choir who'd be like, oh, you're so right, Jay-Z's the man, but who is out there who will reasonably and in good faith say, no, not Jay, or no to whatever your argument is and face that down? There it is. That's what you got. Every day you got to bring that. That's what makes it, you know, if you're honest... And, you know, when people talk about bipartisan in this political era, Mm-mm. which is the both-siderisms is great. I, uh, fake. I've heard, I saw you argue against that brilliantly on Twitter the other day. So, but what is necessary, what is true, is to seed the humanity and legitimacy of an opponent worthy of your engagement. Everybody ain't worthy, right? Like some people hitting me at tw- like dog, right? Which is why, you know, Jay-Z is so useful. If I shoot you... I'm brainless. Mm. If you shoot me, you're famous. What's a brother to do? That sticks in mind all the time. I'm going to give you a better platform to crap on me when you're not worthy of being involved in the game. Just because you got access to me don't mean you deserve it, right? And that's not elitism. Everybody, you know, the democratization of social media is important, but the illusion that everybody has the skill, you ain't John Updike. You you ain't friggin' Toni Morrison. So engage, but understand with whom you are interacting. Do you write with a pen? Do you stay on the computer, Computer. all on the computer? Yeah, yeah. I can't even read my writing hardly. Now, I'll make a lot of notes, you know, and and because when you write it, it does something different to you. When you put it on paper or, or on screen and force yourself to do it, but writing especially because you got to remember, you know, you're thinking as you're writing, you're doing it. But in terms of writing... You know, Toni Morrison writes still in those long yellow pads. Man, that's, that's oh, yeah. impossible. I do that. Like, I can't even. That, that's amazing. I, I got I to gotta have it on, in hand yeah, I can't, first. I can't, even I, a book you, is you, all in ooh, hand first. I can't see it, bro. And then to the computer. That's amazing. And then you print it out and deal with it on page. That's amazing. I'm composing right there on the screen. And, and you're it, rewriting on the screen? Right there, right there. You know, right there. I mean, because right you there. get so much out of the rewriting, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't worry about whether the first draft is good or no, not. No, let it flow. Let yeah. it flow. Yeah, and then, and then you rewrite come back. and massage and change I mean, and move. and. I mean, the context determines it because you change, not just your writing, not just what you got to say. You change the person who's saying it, mm. you know? So later on, you understand stuff that you couldn't. I get it now. I just turned 61. There's some stuff I'm just not getting. Mm. You know, just understanding that the words that I read ain't changed, but the person reading them has. Mm. I now know differently because I feel and perceive differently and words that didn't mean the same thing before. That's why when you go to great works of art, when you go to Jay-Z lyrics you know, or Nas, you're not just reading what was set in stone and therefore now you come to new appreciation because they grew, you grew. You've written you about deeply Jay, Nas, Tupac. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have you, you've written articles about Biggie, but right, you haven't right, done a book, right. about no, Biggie. No book about Biggie. Who else is there who is book worthy to you who might be next? I'm going to tell you, Drake. I knew you were going to say Drake. Yes, sir, dog. What do you got? You got biracial identity. You got, you got diasporic blackness, right? Because the interesting things about Drake in terms of when he was growing up in that hood in in Toronto and between Memphis, right? You got that. That's not just bi-coastal. That's bi-country, right? And 
you've got the way in which the Caribbean influence is so deeply imprinted in him. You've got the, the black Jewish dynamic, which is operating with biracialism. Sub, you know, the subsection of that is the black Jewish right, engagement, which is quite fascinating, right? Having a bar mitzvah for real as a black man and understanding what that might mean. You got the light versus dark. Yeah, I mean, there's so the much- one percenter rap, right? So much of it is, I am super rich. I just bought a plane. I just bought a building. Same with Jay. Then you got the, but you got the substrata. Then you got the emotional intensity. Then you've got the revelation. Then you've got struggling with doubt and vulnerability. If you listen to Drake, I'm teaching a class on him right now. So, oh, you yeah. got a Drake class? Oh yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And it's remarkable. And the and you would think like, damn, I might have to invent some shit. No, like he's infinitely interpretable. And there's so many levels to this cat that people are missing, which I'm glad for. Like when I talk to people and they go like, oh my God, I'll go like, that's the book. I mean, when we say Nas, Pac, Jay, those are like some of the coolest and baddest no brothers on the planet. No doubt, no doubt. And a lot of people would say Drake is corny. Yeah. And he does not fit in that group. What, what would I you say to that. that? Yeah, I love that. I love the. I love that. I love that argument. For every corny Negro there has ever existed, including you, including me, <laughs> right? Look at you, nerd. Look at you. Are you kidding me? Drake is made for you. So <laughs> you just don't know that yet. So when you begin to understand the worldview, right, what the Germans call the Weltanschauung that this brother represents and what he's tapped into... And and some people I used to talk to, oh, I hate it, but I hate it. Like, oh, okay. Now first they got dominant, just the, the the sheer commercial dominance. Like, yeah. dude, you yeah. ain't gonna drop that many hits. Yeah, you're not going to dominate the music scene that way. That ain't luck. And then you begin to peel back, like I did. I mean, I was interested, but I was like, whoa. And I, and I told you I share that bond. But man, when you began to unpack. Uh, it's remarkable. So that corniness well, sets lot. him off in the same way that that Kanye started off, but now it's gone to different parts. Kanye is, is Kanye is also devil. book worthy without oh, a doubt. No, without no, a doubt, no question. It's tricky because he's so polarizing. A lot of people are like, I don't want to fuck with Kanye. I don't want to, you know. I mean, look, you. I, I'm not saying you can forgive everything Kanye will ever do, but the first five albums, brother, they go a long. Six, yeah, well, maybe six. seven, maybe even seven. Well, I think the last two were whack, but the first well, six were incredible. No, but he got a good one in, you know, with the with the Cuddy and kids and all. I mean, he's got yeah. like if you put that together. But but right. So when you think about what that guy has done, he brought the soulfulness back. Yeah, right. That Midwestern uh, sonic aesthetic, right? That that he introduced, that he unleashed, that he excavated, digging in the crates, and the what was seen to be throwaway lyrics that you know he's talking about. Joining spirituality and civil rights march. I mean, what he has joined together is pretty darn remarkable. I almost told I, I talked to him um, three, four months ago. He's kind of mad at me because I was he's on television at, everybody. saying that, you know, what he's doing now is white supremacy through ventriloquism, that a black mouth is moving, but white supremacy is ideal speaking. I can understand why that would hurt your feelings. You're talking about with that with the Trump stuff. The MAGA and all that not stuff. With the, but I said, that. he saw me. I was on tour for Tears We Cannot Stop, a sermon of white America. And a guy's waiting for me outside the studio and I go outside and he turns to this guy and he says, you know who that is? He said, it's Michael Eric Dice. And it was Kanye. I said, yeah. <laughs> you know? So we exchanged pleasantries. I got in the car. He knocks on the window. I tell my person driving, literary escort, hey, we got to talk. We talk 45 minutes. He asked me about Trump and all that. And this is right before Trump was elected. I said, I said, why would you 
bring your special genius and make it available for a hack. Right. I said, sir, he doesn't belong in a room with you. Right. Right. Like on, on, on any level. Right. And I said, and part of it is I knew that, that he had been hurt by Obama. Black people right. rush over that and dismiss it. Obama was disingenuous by dismissing him. You didn't call Toby Keith an asshole or a jackass. Now, I know he didn't go up and snatch the microphone, but look at what he did. Even there, I was there at the VMAs. Yeah. Right, we are. Right? But then you look at it and you say, I bet you little Richard said, I wish he was there when I was getting ripped off when they were giving my awards to, uh, to Pat Boone. Where the hell were you? Or I bet you Chuck Berry said when they gave my well, stuff to, you to know, Elvis, right? So my point is, what he was doing symbolically was seizing again the means of amplification of artists who are white, who are great. Taylor Swift is an amazing artist, but but we knew that was Beyonce's year. Single ladies, video, not song, video. We knew that. I mean, there's so there's, he gave back to black people. But what there's, had been way, taken from there's them. ways to make that protest of without course. being an asshole. That and, is true. That and is true. I mean, I defended him in that moment and right. many in that year, two year period because I was like, he's mourning. So we got to give him some level of understanding. That's of, part of it. He's I think what he in did personal is, trouble. Is, I think it's exclusive for mourning, too. I think what he did on that stage was to reverse, right, rudely. It was, it was rude and crude, right? It was primal, even. But it was primal in the sense it was also, that the reaction. There's also privilege of like, I'm Kanye. I can run up and interrupt your acceptance speech because I'm so big. That's right. That's in the context of white privilege that was being denied to a woman who exercised it without being conscious of it. That's one element of it. But it's also a, a politics of revenge. Well, let's just say ethic of justice, depending on how you want to look at it, or a drunk guy. Standing up on stage. There's also, yes, it's also alcohol, yes. Right, but... See, but 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 the larger political point is powerful. I'm tired of seeing black artists shit on and getting stuff they uh, deserve taken from them. So yes, the initial outpouring is, you know, horrible. And what he did to to Taylor subsequently was just bad in terms of this bit, you know, mm. using all that stuff is horrible. Mm. But in that moment, I still defend him for having done that. Now, having said all that, but if you support I, Trump, King racist. Because Obama called you a jackass. That ain't all it is. That ain't all it is. But that's one of the. I'm saying. I'm saying one of the elements is is that Obama gets away with crapping on one, a major black genius and be and it being cool. Oh, he didn't mean he didn't do it for public. So hey, I didn't mean to say it. But he never apologized either. Well, that's the well, thing about well, arrogance, black well, privilege. It was the the initial video mm. piece was not meant for public consumption. That's what I'm saying. But. A print reporter right. went him. to of Obama course. and asked him the question again, and he and he said it again, and right. he did not say this is you know so. Of course, so but I'm saying we don't hold him. I mean, you talking about a guy skating through? <laughs> you talking about a guy skating through? We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door. Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, 
Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. We'll get back to the show in a second, but look, it's December and I want to take something difficult off your plate because we've got parties and gifts to buy and all this other stuff. And we got to take care of insurance too. It's the way that I'm able to sleep at night knowing if something happens, my family will still be taken care of. So if you want to find the right life insurance at the best price and do it the easiest possible way... Go to PolicyGenius.com. It makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers and get the best price and save thousands using PolicyGenius to compare different policies. And once you apply, their team will take care of all the paperwork and red tape so you can get back to parties and eating turkey and buying gifts for everybody, even the people in your family you don't love. So look, if you need life insurance, and you do, and you're not sure where to get it, and you probably don't, Go to PolicyGenius.com. Just takes a couple minutes to find the right life insurance policy, apply, and bam, another thing is off your list. PolicyGenius.com. When it comes to life insurance, you got to get it right. 
talk of let's 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 swift because there's a bunch of things that I still want to get to with you. Mm. Um, we were on TV last week talking about Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. Um, he was not treated fairly by the NFL. He was treated outrageously unjust along the way. I mean, the workout was the, not meant to be a workout. It was not a real chance to get back into the NFL. It was a concession to Jay-Z's demand that he be given a workout, that he be given a tryout. But what what he got was surely not what Jay-Z told them to give him. Oh, absolutely. Number one, true. But number two, it was both-sided, sir, in this sense. Right? Now, you and I agree. How he was treated is horrible. Still, to this day. I ain't talking about, like, three years ago. Like, still. The egregious offense to him. He shouldn't even be in a position where he has to try out. Let's just put it that way. Unless your skill. Where he has to have a special tryout. No, he should right, not. Right. No. Yeah, you, you're no. just like, your skills are still there. You got banned for no other reason than you took a brave stand in behalf of black people. On an issue that the white fans and the white owners don't want to hear about. They don't want to hear about it anyway. Because if it was about. Because if you raped the, a woman, if, if you if were violent was, against a woman, if you stole some stuff. You be in the league, bro. Well, but if it was about wounded warriors are not getting enough attention. Well, but here's the thing. Very briefly, we don't have to give an abbreviated Foucaultian or even Nietzschean genealogy of the development of athletes over the 30 years, but let's try it in one second, maybe 30 seconds. You start off in the 60s, the cultural backdrop is Vietnam, civil war, uh, civil rights, and civil war. And black, black power. White, right, black power and all that. So athletes were accepted as voice boxes. It was still tough. It was still rough. Tommy Smith, John before Carlos, him, uh, John Carlos, uh, Muhammad, uh, Muhammad Ali, Ali uh, Lou Alcindor, then Russell, become Bill Brown. Russell, all that, right? So, but they were, but it was, it was, it was not too surprising, right? Because we knew these athletes would stand up and represent Hank Aaron. After but they that. were hated for what they did. They did. They they were, but there were there were a greater number of them doing it I mean, because people, it was more acceptable. People were rooting for Sonny Liston in that of fight. Of course, of course, they were for a variety of reasons, right? But the backdrop is understandable because you got all this chaos going on, so you understood why athletes were doing that. Now, when things are relatively right, we know Black Lives don't matter to people, so therefore their hurt and pain are invisible. But there was no war going on actively right here in America that, that impacted us. We had two wars being prosecuted, but they were more abstract. And the social dynamics of black progress obscured the persistent legacy of inequality. So now it shifts from social activism to social service. Build a house. Go see a kid in the hospital. You're great, LeBron. You're, you're beautiful. Kobe, you're beautiful. But tweet out a picture of you in a hoodie, as LeBron did, bravely, for the Miami Heat. Miami Heat, mm, now you're getting back on that political terrain and where your Q ratings are going to suffer and, and the like. So the bravery and courage of these athletes is even more remarkably articulated now. And Colin Kaepernick, by doing what he did, uh, tapped into that. Uh, uh, system of courage, that expression of identification with the least of these in a very powerful fashion. Um, Having said that, this is where we have to get to, I think. And it's hard to do in public, and it's hard to say it in this microphone. We have to admit, I love you. I love what you're doing. I love what you represent. Can we help you with strategy? Can we help you negotiate the more helpful, productive fashion of expressing your goals or ideals that might help move the needle, forgive the metaphor, (laughs) advance the ball 
and help us achieve the very thing you're talking about. Let me give an example of when it goes wrong. Eric Reed, his compatriot, I love him too, right? I, you know, my criticisms are in context, right? I, I love both of those guys, even if they call me a sellout. I don't care. I, I love them, right? They turn against Malcolm Jenkins, who plays for the Philadelphia Eagles, because he sat at a table with the former player, Anquan Bowden, and the NFL offered $90 million to say, we're going to fund the projects that you all are concerned about, because the point of Colin you know, kneeling was to deal with bigger issues. Right? It wasn't even about his job at that point. He had one. It was about social injustice, oppression against black people, police misconduct, and the refusal to acknowledge our humanity, even though he didn't vote. Okay, cool. Anquan Bolden, but especially Malcolm Jenkins, are black ball players. Remember Malcolm Jenkins held up the, the signs, the cards at uh, his locker because all these uh, um, um, you know, questioners and media folk kept it, journalists and reporters kept asking the same question. He said, clearly, you ain't getting the message. And beautifully, he held him up. This is what happens every so many uh, hours, some black person dies, right? Laying it out beautifully. And this is a guy who's called a sellout and a neo-colonialist by Eric Reed. This is the kind of guy that Colin Kaepernick has not forged connection with because they are compatriots on the same side. I'm sorry. I don't care how much, and you have sacrificed, you know, and been rewarded, right? And I, I don't play those off against each other. I don't believe that, oh, therefore, because you've been rewarded by Nike and compensated, that's the universe taking care of you. I'm, I'm down with all of that. But sir, Mr. Reed, uh, to call names against compatriots who are on the same team trying to achieve the same goal and what you said ostensibly was your goal they are working on by the way the players coalition they're working on sophisticated interpretations of stand your ground laws they are winning victories every day you don't hear anything about them and it's not because they're not doing great work but we're caught up in a machinery of contestation between Colin and the league, which is extremely important, which is why it was important for Jay-Z to go inside and force the hand of the NFL, I think it could have been handled better. I think, number one, with Colin in terms of his workout, on his side, we know, look, look, I don't go to Pharaoh looking for freedom scholarships. I know what Pharaoh is, right? If we're surprised by the mendacity of white supremacy, we are already at a disadvantage. But go why is there so knowing. much critique of what Cap did when the NFL came to him in bad faith, tried to get him into a trap. Because he said he wanted a tryout. Well, sure, but I would expect more critique from many people, not just from you, but from Stephen A., from Tony Dungy, on and on and on, all these players of the NFL. There is, wait a minute, there's been sustained critique of the NFL for three years. I hear a lot, but in this moment, I heard a lot of- The last three books I have. But in this moment, I hear a lot of critique of what Cap did and did not do. Because you're still an agent of your destiny, bruh. Let me tell you what, when Martin Luther King Jr., at all, right? He wasn't just king, but he was the major figure. Snick, Ella Baker, those people were disciplined. You know, before you could go out to a protest, they said, like, oh, no, you got to, no, you got to get trained. Right? Here are the 10 principles. If they do this, right? You got to know your enemy. You got to know your opponent. And you got to be tested against what he or she will do to you. And you have to be strategic. King got his butt beat in uh, Albany. Albany, New York. You know what uh, Laurie Pritchard did? He said, man, okay, I ain't going to be violent toward him. I'm going to be nonviolent when I arrest him. Damn. And then, you know what? I ain't going to put them all in the same jail either. I'm going to send them out to the suburbs, send them across the county. That man outfought and outfought Martin Luther King Jr. And the Albany movement was not the success it should have been. What did King do? 
learn from it. What was two years later? Birmingham. Do we know the story? Sir, being an activist does not exempt you from intelligence, from scrutiny, and from critique. And who are you speaking to? Let me go even further for you. So I was at, I was out telling you, because you're Teray, I'm a fool and I'm talking. So far from a I, fool. I, yeah, well, I'm uh, at the um, Tyler Perry uh, shindig where he opened his studios, which was remarkable in his own right. We should talk about that one time. Just unbelievable. <clears throat> and Mr. Kaepernick came to me, son, he's treating you out. I, I ain't got no ego. I was like, good, bro. Let's talk. You got my number, but you use it basically to use me as a PR forum to retweet what you say. How about some substantive dialogue? I'm one of the coldest ever to do this. Don't know if you know that. That's what I do for a living. I'm giving it to you for free. I ain't going to charge you because I love you. I'm on your side, right? And this wonderful lady, Nessa, I love both of them. She says, I want to tell you about what's going on. So before I wrote my stuff on Jay for the, for, for, um, for the Washington Post, I called them both up. Crickets. Jay, what's up? Texting me, blah, blah, blah. I'm calling them because I want their perspective. I want to offer also free, you know, and you got to talk to me. Talk to somebody. Talk to people who give you a historical understanding. Now, they could disagree with me. They could disagree with us. That's fine. But I think it's counterproductive not to engage in strategic intervention. I'll go even further for you. He's being praised for wearing uh, the Kunta Kente shirt, and it's a matter of freedom. And Max Kellerman said on the show I appeared on that why now focus on, this is what they do to black people and other minorities, focus on the what you think of the faux pas or the mistakes they made as opposed to the overwhelming injustice of what has precipitated. I agree with that, right? I agree that the overwhelming wrong has been done by the NFL. No question, end of story. However, I come from a people, forgive me for being born when I was, like, you got to be twice as good. And I know that to the True. millennial generation, oh, my God, that doesn't have drip. <laughs> that doesn't have existential anchors in uh, protest and cancel culture. I'm, 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 I'm tired of y'all with that, right? And then this ain't the Obama, right, challenge of wokeness. That, that, that's, that's highly problematic. You never got challenged by Black Lives Matter when you're in office. And had you been woker instead of weaker, more things could have been done. But I come from a generation to say, yes, you know these people don't mean you good. Why be surprised? Why complain about it, right? Martin Luther King Jr., the protest was not conducted under ideal conditions. And as a result, you know this going in the dough. You got to fight these people. Come in with a Disney shirt. Hey, boys and girls, <laughs> this is Mickey Mouse being represented. Be clean and smooth, right? Oh, I know it's going to be capitulation to respectability policy. Yeah, no fool, I'm talking about strategy. And then get in like a Trojan horse. And then let Snoop Dogg and Stokely Carmichael and everybody out when you get inside. Who invited them? Colin did because they inside of him because you didn't know he was bringing them with him. All I'm saying is it is not a sellout to say, bruh, I'm on your side, but you need some more strategy. I'm on your side, but you could have done things differently. I'm on your side. They are egregiously wrong, but we knew that. We know that going in the door. So don't be surprised when your enemy acts like your enemy. That's all I'm saying. I am with Colin from start to end. But at the same time, if you call in Malcolm Jenkins' names because he took, he, he's leveraging $90 million of those white owners' money to support your project, bruh, you won already. And to deny them legitimacy is cr is crazy and problematic. Okay. So that's just me on that. That's but I still a, love it. That's okay. Okay. What does eating healthy mean to you? 
Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Okay. I want to, um, I want to shift gears mm-hmm. because, um, because I know you for a very, very long time, mm-hmm. more than the writing into, into, into the family, you know, into your, into your wife, into, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked about your family before. Um, and I know that you went through it uh, in the last year with yeah. your brother. And, you know, and you lost two brothers. Mm -hmm. My older brother, Anthony, who I'm 60 years old. So we were only, what, 16 months apart. He fell and hit his head at uh, work and never woke up again. Mm. Went to the hospital, pulled the plug. He was dead in two minutes. When did that happen? That was a couple years ago. And your brother... Everett, that was Anthony, my brother Everett, the younger brother, who was in prison for 30 years for a crime we believe he did not commit, right? The evidence is not there. I'm not one of these people who believe my brother sold drugs and slang crack and did a lot of stuff, right? So he was always honest. I cussed him out every day. We talked, you know. But my mother and other brothers said he was at home when this thing happened. The lawyers didn't put them on a stand. Well, there will be prejudice and stuff. Horrible lawyers, right? I... Ooh, I could tell you about lawyers. Uh, it's 30 years ago, 30-some years ago. I was so green, you could put me in the grass, I'd grow. In the ground, I would grow. So we learned a lot, and he died, and I um, was denied burial at his church where he grew up and I grew up because he was not a Christian, because he had you know, converted to Muslim Moorish temple. But he grew up in his church. And the Bible says, my, per- my house is a place of prayer for all people. So how are you going to deny, right? I'm saying this for the first time in public. How are you going to deny my brother being buried? I'm extremely distraught by the narrow bigotry of religion. I've been a pastor and a preacher ordained for 40 years. But uh, that is unconscionable to me. My religion is love. You could be an atheist and we on the same side, or you could be Paula White, a white minister who pastors black people 
who sides with Trump and stands against, for him and says, if you disagree with him, you are standing against God. That is heresy. So my brother's death, my younger brother's death, when he couldn't be buried in his own church, uh, to me is unconscionable as a Christian to turn anybody down. What about if we were from another country? We didn't believe what you believe, but this is the only place we could be buried. Are you telling me because those, that person was not Christian? That's unchristian to deny them because they weren't Christian. And this, I mean, this has been something that has weighed on you yeah, throughout yeah. your life, that yeah. you, you grew up together, right. entirely different paths, mm-hmm. different fathers, right? No, Same father, different, uh, I mean, uh, 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 I'm sorry, you're right, different fathers, same mother, right? Right. And but we grew up together as but grew up together as one. But because I didn't know who my father, I didn't have, I had not met my father until right after Aretha Franklin's funeral, ever in my life. Didn't know who he was or anything. That's another story. We'll talk about it someday. So we grew up as when I grew all through my youth. I mean, I knew something was different, but I was never told that's not your father and so on and so forth. So we grew up as brothers. Yeah, and that was our father. Uh, but it's completely different paths, color scheme, light versus dark. Uh, his talent was not recognized equally in, equally intelligent, a brilliant young man, uh, but made uh, different and poor choices in many reg- some regards and uh, hustling on the street and doing what well, he we did. We talked about before that colorism is, is part of why, as younger children, you were given love, attention, and expectation no of intelligence. No question. And he was darker and was not. It, there's no question about that, right? That to, to encourage me, curly hair, little cute, little yellow boy versus him, you know, young chocolate boy, young brown skinned boy. You know, I mean, there's unconscious reflex and reaction and, and prejudice that disallows the acknowledgement of that color division in black communities, Forget the larger world. That's even more exacerbated by these tensions. But, you know, uh, there's no question to me that that was the case. And it was uh, a devastating reality. And we spoke about it a bit. I talked about it with Soledad O'Brien when she did a special on Black America, the first one. And me and my brother was the, were the subject of a story. There's no question about that. Hmm. That's hard, though. Oh, it was hard, brother. I had to preach both of their funerals. So... Um, you know, you think about your own mortality, you think about your family. And look, you know this. I come out of a family where me and my younger brother, Gregory, were the only two to go to college. We got a tribe on our back. I got a tribe on my back. I got a lot of people I'm taking care of out of my family. I'm not complaining. You've, you've known me for how many years? I don't complain. That's what it is. That's what I mean by Colin. That's what it is. Like it to be different. This is what it is. And this is what I do. So, you know, me, uh, uh, Mary Patillo writes in Black Picket Fences about the black middle class. Black middle class could be a lot further along, but we'd be taking care laterally of the folk, the white folk, and others don't even be thinking, of me. hey, I made my own way. You make yours, uh, buddy. Get going there. I'm going to give you a little inheritance, but we ain't starting with that. We're starting without that inheritance. We're starting without that hookup. All right, I'm going to buy your first crib for you, but right, we don't have that for the most part. So we have to take care of so many people. My mother... I put my nieces and nephews through school, bought them cars. And like, I mean, you know, my children, right? That's what it is. Uh, and so many others who needed help in the extended family. Um, but thank God for the ability to help and thank God for the ability to, to be able to make real some of their dreams and to assist while my other brothers were going through it. What was that when you reconnected with your dad? Hmm. 
It was painful. It's not reconnected. I never saw him. Never knew him. Didn't even know what his name was. Connected. Never even met him. Never could find out any information about him. And I'm going to talk about it some future time. But it was painful, man. You know? Uh, and not what I thought it would be. The only thing my mother would tell me, she said, he used big words like you. He's a very brilliant guy, she said. No schooling, right? No formal education, no college, anything. He's a very smart guy, but, you know, got caught up 58 police after him for no good reason. He's scared, left. My father, the one who reared me, right, because this guy's my biological producer, but my daddy said, yeah, he went out one day to get some cigarettes when you were in your mama's womb and never came back. So, you know, and I understand it. I understand it from Jay. I understand that from, from Obama. But you can't use that as no excuse to be crapping on black men the way Obama does to me. And I know that, I know that anger. I can see it and I know what that is, Right. But if you were to be honest about it, your mother left you with your grandparents to go off. Now, if that had been a sister, oh, you just abandoned your kids. You at the club, right, as opposed to taking care of your responsibilities. That would be the narrative. And I think some of his anger uh, you know, with black people, because I think Obama has a love, I won't call it hate, but a love-antipathy relationship with blackness, man. You know, I think he does. I but think if, he performs it in public. But if we go back in your life, mm -hmm. it's not at all ordained that you would be here as one of the leading intellectual scholars of your era. Mm -hmm. You're not somebody who, you know, just breezes through private school into a Harvard or Yale right. or what have you. You went to a private school for a period of time right. based on the, the love and support of the elders of your community. Right. Uh, it got kicked out because you emotionally could not deal with the, the, the white supremacy that right. was thrust on you. Right. You were 20, 21. 21 when I went to school. When with I went a to child. Yes. With a child. Going to, uh, you know. A, 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 Historically black college. But, you know, no, nothing that is name brand. No, and, it was porous. It's closed now. I mean, at 21 with a child and, you know, yeah. pursuing a regular college degree, nobody was thinking, well, this is surely going to be one of the... So how do you get from there mm. to becoming a major intellectual figure? And I mean, like, you know, like like you're dealing with like a sort of athletics of the mind. Mm. So how do you get from being what would essentially be a 12th round draft pick, if at all, right, right. intellectually, to being like one of the leading figures, if not the leading figure mm. of your generation? Mm. Yeah, bless you for that. No, it's... Uh... It's the grace of God. It's the love of people. And, you know, Einstein said something once. He said, you know, he said, I ain't smarter, although he was. <laughs> he said, I was delayed. I think he used the word retarded, but, you know, it had a different meaning then. Delayed in my development, so I was slow. So I didn't start studying math until an older age than the younger kids did. But because I was older, I was able to go deeper. Saw some more interesting things. I didn't go to college when I was 21. I saw deeper stuff. I, I knew from the beginning I ain't trying to get no degree to please people, no scholars, no fellow thinkers. I'm here for business. 
I'm here for the redemption of my time and space on this earth. I'm here to love and support my son, to provide an example, to, to try to clear the path for us out of poverty and out of want and out of significant dislocation and chaos into something far more stable. And along the way, thinking and writing and engaging the world were the product of a desire and an ambition to be better and to transform myself, my community, my family, and the world around me. So, um, you know, I even did my Ph.D. a little bit differently. Um, I had written my first book, Reflecting Black, 1993, and I said, oh, I haven't finished my Ph.D. yet. Man, I need to really finish that degree so I could be Dr. Dyson when the book comes out. I had gone to Princeton, you know, three years Left, uh, got my master's in 90. I left it. I went in 85, left in 88, got my master's in 91. This was 93. And I had not yet written my perspective for my dissertation. You know, that's when you write 30, 35 pages, 40 pages, tell them what you're going to write about. You go in, you present it to your committee. They look, they, they, you know, quiz you for three hours orally, tell you step out of a room, tell you to come back in. And when they say, sir, Mr. Dyson, you are now, congratulations, you are now a candidate for the doctoral degree, and you spend the next two to five years writing your degree and your dissertation. So when they brought me back in the room and said, congratulations, I said, really? They said, yes. I said, oh, great. Reached under the table and put a 250-page dissertation on the table. And I'm like, now, it's gutsy in this sense because they could have turned me down. They could have said, oh, your subject sucks. No, we don't like it. But they accepted it. And when they accepted it, I pulled the dissertation out. That ruffled some feathers. You know, those fellow students were like, damn, oh, my God, that's legendary. You know, others were like, whew, some teachers were like, pissed, right, because I'm bucking the system. I'm doing it how I do it. And so that was in April. Got my Ph.D. in June from Princeton. Book comes out <laughs> right at the same time. So I was used to being unorthodox. And following my own Aggressive. drum and beat and, yeah, and no, d definitely so. And, you know, I wrote at a fast pace. You know, one of the things that one of my um, professors in college, in the university at Princeton said, you know, whatever you say about this guy, he will never have a problem writing. He's a beautiful writer. And I, I was like, oh, wow, thank you. You know, so I knew I didn't want to just write for fellow scholars from the get-go. I did what I had to do. I got my, you know, so then it's even more unorthodox because usually you get your degree, you spend seven years as an assistant professor, get your tenure, write your first book, then you spend another seven to 15 years becoming a full professor. I was a full professor the next year after I got my PhD because I wrote my first book and it came out and I was working on my second one. So I went from PhD in one year to full professor the next. I jumped over 17 years of work, basically. So a lot of resentment, a lot of hate. But I said, people don't pay dues at the same time, at the same place, and I pay them differently. So I was 35, you know, full professor, 34, 35. Then I became a university professor, and that doesn't mean anything to anybody listening who's not a scholar, but that means you're above a distinguished professor, and so on. So I knew that I wanted to do work that would change people's lives and minds. I wanted to do extremely rigorous work that might be read by 12 people, 
and I wanted to do work that could be read by the masses. And sometimes there would be both the same book and sometimes not. So that's what has guided me. That is the principle that has led me to do what I do and to be rewarded as I have been by recognition of the character of my work, the quality of my work, uh, the quantity of that work as well, driven by the need to express myself. I didn't have any publisher pairs because I got full professor the next year after I graduated. It was done, right? Tenure and full professorship, one fell swoop. So I'm driven by passion. I'm driven by what I want to do. I don't have to bend to the rules of, oh, you'll never become a full professor if you speak out. You know, when young people come to me, it's foreign to me because I was able to speak out immediately. So I tell them, cool out. You didn't have that same position. Understand what your position is. Play your role. And when you get in the right position, strike. My point exactly about Calvin and Kaepernick. It's strategic. It's not about, I I love you. I appreciate you. But the best people are going to tell you the truth about how you can how you can use your situation and be more, me be wiser and more informed about what has to be done. So that's you know what I and a, a bit of luck and a lot of grace and a lot of people praying for me and uh, support me. That's I ask doing. everybody, what is your superpower? What is the thing that mm-hmm. the, the ability that allows you to be who you are that that illuminates you from within and allows you to to be successful in the way that you are. Hmm. Another professor, my major advisor at university, uh, and others drew a conclusion. They said, never seen a guy who's willing to absorb criticism and seeks out critique in order to get better. Now, all of us got limits, we have egos, but I understand that, which is why, again, with my dear brother Kaepernick, I understand that if you're not doing it to kill me, destroy me, and some, some even with that, that ambition, you can still learn from them. But I was desirous of getting better. I want to be a better writer. Every book, I want to get better. Every sermon I preach, I want to get better, literally. So if there's anything, I understand that the key word of black culture is next. You take our stuff, we're going to invent something else. You take that, we're going to invent something else. So that kind of creativity, infinite it seems, is what drives me that, that I want to do the next thing and I want to be better at it when I do it. And that requires a certain kind of humility and a certain kind of egoless investment uh, in the work in order to get it done. Because when I started, you know, one of the reasons why, if I can say this, I identify with Jay. When he starts, he's with Biggie and Pac and Nas, and now he's out here, you know, competing with, you know, Drake and Lil Wayne and uh, Kendrick Lamar. When I started, I was on the cover with Cornell West, Bell Hooks, and Derek Bell, and now I'm on the New York Times bestseller list with Ta-Nehisi Coates. Respect my game, my longevity in this game, right? To stay at that level, to keep challenging myself, to be better. And to understand and to adjust to the different and shifted, you know, judgments and criteria by which that work can be done and shifting from, you know, the, to the Internet and what that might mean and using those fora, uh, trying to understand what that means. I've tried to remain at the top of my game and to challenge myself to become better every time.
Thanks to Dr. Dyson for an amazing interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. And tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall, and our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And believe we will be back next Wednesday, no doubt, with another amazing guest, because the man can't shut us down. <laughs>